Good morning. Good morning. Hey, uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 12. We're welcoming Amped Blend Roan County. Good morning to y'all down in Bearden. Good morning to you all. And we're in a series called Supernatural, a Biblical Worldview from Exodus. If you had asked me a number of years ago to kind of state the big picture of the Bible and, and what's going on there, there's, there's a piece of it. And I think um, many Bible communicators uh, do this unintentionally, and that is that there's this great cosmic battle that's going on between the God of the Bible and the enemy of the God of the Bible. People call him Satan or the devil, and in many people's view, you have the God of the Bible up here, and then you have Satan or the devil right here. He's not God, but he's close, and you better watch out because he's going to get you. Now with that, okay, I, I, I want to be, be perfectly clear. There are adversaries of God. Someday we might do a series on this because it's fascinating. It'll blow your mind. Because a lot of what you've been taught about the devil and the Satan, it's just not in the Bible, but it's just theory that people have come up with over time. And, and what, what we see in the Bible is there's not an adversary, there's multiple adversaries. There's not a antichrist, there's multiple antichrists. There's many that are opposed to the working of God. There's many spiritual beings that are actively opposed to you and living out your relationship with God. So that's all very true. But here's the picture that the Bible presents. There's the God of the Bible and every other spiritual being that, that he's created. They're not close. They're, it's not like, oh, we're, we're not really sure how this is gonna work out. We're not really sure. Well, there's God and, well, there's also the, the enemy. There's the devil and he's crouching behind a door. I know, Dave, I know I, I, he's crouching. He's waiting to get me. Yeah, there's a very real enemy of God. There's an adversary of God who wants to see you fail in your relationship of following God. But he's not even close in power to the God of the Bible. That's a biblical worldview according to Exodus. It's not even close. And we saw that unfold as we went working our way through the, the story of the Exodus. Now, we've been talking about what it means to have a biblical worldview. And it begins with this principle. This entire series is built upon this idea that, that my only hope as a human being is to know God and what he says. If I'm placing my hope in anything else, it is sure to fail. Over the long term, it will absolutely fail because my only hope as a human being is to know God and what he says. Because when I know God and what he says, a hopeless world turns into a hope-filled world. A world that, that is going to be transformed into a new creation where I will live with God forever. Now, last week we saw that if we're going to know God, it will be because we, we know God's power. God will be known by his power. And Mark walked us through these, these nine supernatural signs that God gives to the children of Israel as he pours judgment upon the Egyptians and upon the king of Egypt as he pours out his judgment, God's power is on display. And so the spirit world is real. The spirit world is real. The unseen world is as real as the world you see. 
We, we don't have this idea as we work our way through Exodus that there's this, this fake world that these people believe in. It's all very real, okay? How it makes itself known isn't exactly uh, and according to the Egyptian worldview, but it doesn't mean that it's not real. Now, as we continue in this Exodus narrative, we have to embrace both these truths, that, that the spirit world is real and the unseen world is real. And then this week, if we're going to know God, we need to embrace this truth, that we, we remember God's salvation through judgment. I remember the first time that I heard somebody say that, that God saves through judgment. And my question was, is that true? You may be asking yourself, is that actually true? And what we're going to look at today is that's exactly what God does today and what he has done throughout history. That as he brings judgment upon rebellion, God provides salvation. So as we remember back, we're just going to cover a couple things real quick. We remember back in chapter 4 that that Yahweh had told Moses that that he was to go to the king of Egypt and he was to tell him that that, um, let my son go and remember Israel is the firstborn son of God, okay? His firstborn son is the children of Israel, are the children of Israel, um, that, that they are his firstborn son. He says, let my son go or I will kill your firstborn son. It's either you let my son come and serve me. Instead of serving you, you're going to let them come serve me. Or I will take the life of your firstborn son. So as we pick up here, we're going to pick up in chapter 11. Just a quick little reminder where we left off. There's now been nine supernatural signs. And chapter 11 picks up with the threat of the final supernatural sign. The, the, the 10th plague that you likely know, we talked about last week, how their, their blows, their supernatural signs, their, there've been strikes against the king of Egypt and against the Egyptians. And up until this point, the children of Israel, they've not had them poured out on them. These acts of judgment haven't affected them. But now the 10th one, that will be different. It's going to come across all the land and the, the final act of judgment will be exactly what God had told Moses to tell Pharaoh. The life of the firstborn will be required. We're going to pick up in chapter 12. I know it's a lot. Uh, just hang in there. Here we go. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. If you highlight and underline, do both to that verse, that's really important because God reorients the children of Israel's world around what's about to come. Their, their entire lives are now reoriented around this event. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to the father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your, shall lamb. your lamb shall be without blemish a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. 
They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its heads with its legs and in its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. Underline that phrase. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. In this series, we've already talked about the fact that Yahweh, the, the, the covenant name of God, I am who I am. Every time that, that we see the word Lord in, in the Old Testament that's in small caps, it's talking about the covenant name of God and, and that Yahweh is a God of salvation. We've already talked about that. That's who he is. And this weekend, we talk about another aspect of who God is and, and God judges rebellion. God judges rebellion. Why? Because it's who he is. He judges rebellion because he's a God of justice. He's a God who has, has uh, brought judgment in this case upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And now for all of those who don't believe God by placing the, the blood on the doorposts, on the sides of the door and over the top of the door, all of those uh, Israelites who, who don't believe God, who rebel against God by refusing to obey God, judgment will be brought on them as well. Some of you are like, that's not fair. What did they do? Well, rebellion is not believing God. And in our minds, some of the rebellion that we see in the Bible is really bad. But some of the rebellion, it doesn't seem that bad. And we remember back to the very first time that we read about humanity's rebellion against God. And we see the very first man, very first woman. We see that they rebel against God by choosing to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and we could think, well, that's a good thing. Why would God have banned them from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when knowing good and knowing evil is a good thing? Because living independently from God is an evil thing. And in our human mind, it's like, that doesn't seem that bad. Is that really that bad? And in God's, God's economy, that's called evil. It's called sin. Sin is not just the bad stuff that we do. The bad stuff that we do is a product of our rebellion against God. We do bad stuff because we're rebels against God. It's the result. The bad stuff you do is, is the result of your sin. We get that Inverted sometimes. We think it's just about the bad stuff that I do. That's what I need payment for. No, I need payment for my rebellion against God, for choosing to be my own God. So that makes the children of Israel who refused God's loving instruction to place blood 
over the door posts and over the door frame. Just as rebellious as Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who wouldn't do what God said. And that's hard for us to get through our mind. That, that those people who would choose to rebel against God simply by saying, you know, I don't know that I need God. I'm, I'm doing okay on my own. And the, the people who do the most egregious act of evil that you can come up with in your mind, whatever that category is, and you would say those people are in the same category. Why? They're rebels against God. God will bring judgment on rebellion. Why? It's who he is. But here's the good news. He brings salvation in the midst of that. Now, this is interesting to me. In, in verse 12, where it says, I'm going to pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Now, when we see this word gods, here's, here's a, a word that we have to make sure that we're translating in our mind. And we've pointed you before to the Bible Project's uh, videos on spiritual beings. If you haven't watched the Bible Project's videos, I don't have a link for you this week, but you can go look it up, go to, to the Bible Project and, and look at their series. I think there's seven videos, six or seven videos on spiritual beings. If you're, if you're curious about that, go do that. But every time this word is used, this word Elohim that gets translated as God, with a big G or gods with a little G, it's talking about spiritual beings. And the only way Bible translators know to put a big G on that word is through context. It's not a different word. It's not a name for God. And so when you're reading this story, sometimes we can allow our current worldview to read back into a, a biblical text that, that something that isn't there. And that is what we read into this is, well, well, are those gods real? We talked about last week, these gods are very real. They are not fake. They're not false. They're, they're not, um, uh, not gods at all. We'll, we'll talk about that. There's some phrases that get used other places in the Bible where it's saying that the God of the Bible is up here. Every other spiritual being isn't even close. But it doesn't mean they don't exist. It just means that it's, they, they're not on the same level because the God of the scriptures is the, is the God of all gods. He's the one who created. He's the spiritual being who created every other spiritual being. And so when you see that, make sure you're translating that. And you're like, oh, this is talking about spiritual beings. Now, here's the thing. If we start talking spiritual beings, it's like, okay, I get that. Well, what kind of spiritual beings do I know? Well, I know that there's the God of the Bible that we just refer to as God. And then there's angels and there's demons. And then that series, you're going to find out like there's, there's other characters in the Bible that are there that aren't the same as angels and demons. There's cherubim and seraphim. And that while a lot of people would go, well, they're angels, they're angelic-ish. There's lots of spiritual beings. And, and out of that, that, what we have to make sure that we're reminding ourselves is that, that they're very real. They're very real, just as real today as they were, as they were masquerading as the gods of Egypt. In our world today, they're still masquerading. 
They're still masquerading. If, if you've had a chance to be on a mission trip to a foreign country, you have likely experienced this. You've likely experienced a spiritual reality in a way that you haven't experienced here in North America. I, I don't have any data to prove this. It's just theory. This is just my theory. But, but the, the manifestation in the spiritual world in North America is different than what you'll experience in other places around the world. It's very uh, similar in Europe and North America as compared to places like Africa, um, especially in my experience being in Haiti, where they have embraced the worship of gods. And it's very real. It's, it's not like, oh, that's fake. They believe in just some kind of mystical fakeness. No, there, there's a real power at work. Is it on the level of the power of God? No. Does it make people absolutely fearful of the spiritual realm? A hundred percent. And does the spirit realm manifest itself, manifest itself in a different way than it does here in North America? Absolutely. And this is just my theory. How does the spiritual realm masquerade itself here in North America? Success. Success. And I'm like, well, if I was an enemy of God, here's how I would trick you. Here's how I would trick you. I would give you everything you ever dreamed of. I'd give you a great education. I'd give you a great house. I'd give you a great family. I'd, I'd give you success in the world. I'd give, you, I'd give you everything you ever dreamed of. Why? Because you're going to show up on the other end of that and go, what do I need God for? And I would say, I win. See, God, they don't love you. They just love the stuff that you give them. They love the stuff more than they love you. If that, if that resonates with you, that should terrify you. It's very real. So if you're thinking that the, the affluenza, right, the, the love of stuff, the love of success, the, the love of more, if, if, uh, the love of experience, I would give you great experiences. Because if I can do that, I can make you think that you're okay because you're the God of you and you're in rebellion against God. Now, as someone who's part of the active spiritual realm, who's opposed to God working in this world and opposed to God working through his people in this world, for me, that resonates and it's resonating more and more and more all the time. Does it manifest itself in dark spaces and places? Yeah, but the human heart is, as we already talked about, is, is utterly deceitful. We'll do all kinds of crazy things, left our own devices. And so I don't even got to trick people into that. People who are in rebellion against God will come up with their, with their own ways to do dark stuff. I don't even have to mess with that. What do I have to do? I have to trick you into believing everything is okay. In a, in a country where you don't have stuff, I'll change my game plan. I'll come up with a different way. I'll intimidate you as you engage in the, the worship of the occult, for lack of a better way to say it. As you worship other gods, as you worship things that we would say those gods aren't real, I would make them seem like they are very real. That's just my view. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's totally not what, what's going on in the spiritual realm. But it's the thing that I believe is going on in the spiritual realm. That, that if God is going to be successful through us, we have to be people who are open to all of what the Bible is saying and open our eyes to, the, to having a biblical worldview according to the scriptures. 
And that begins way back in the Old Testament saying, wait, there's something more to the story than what I see. And we see that through the Exodus. Now, this is super cool. They take a lamb and, the, and this lamb becomes, if you've been around church for a minute, you've likely heard this word Passover before. And um, often things that we just throw around really like useful, the Passover, the Passover, the Passover, the Passover. There's a little bit more um, complicated answers around that. And that word Passover is one of those words. It's actually a debated word. What, what is actually being communicated in that word Passover, in particular, something that gets missed is this idea of it's not just that God's going to um, skip over. It is that idea, okay? It's not less than that, but it is more than that. What we're talking about is God's protection. This is a protective sacrifice. This isn't just a, um, okay, I'll, I'll go on to the next. No, it is a, I will give you my protection and I will, I, I will spare you. So every time you see that word Passover, this is the Lord's protection. This is a celebrate that's this is a celebration where we're celebrating God's protection because while God judges rebellion, he provides salvation through his judgment. He provides protection for those who believe him. For those who choose to trust what God has said, that he gives them a substitute in order that they would be protected. Now here, this lamb is a real lamb, okay? It's either from the goats or from the sheep. It's a real lamb, a year old, bone unbroken. That lamb's life is taken. They eat as much as they can eat. They, they, they eat the lamb and then they burn the rest, they take the blood, they put it over the doorpost, and then they, they trust that what God has told them is true. God didn't lie to them. If you do that, their actual firstborn son, the life will be spared. And it happens. We're going to talk about that next week. They just believe God. We're going to do that. For all of those who don't, they, they end up on the, the judgment side of God. For all of those who do, they end up on the salvation side of God's activity in their world. Now, this word, um, it's used actually, this exact same word is used by the prophet Isaiah. And there's lots of examples that I could give you. I'm just going to give you one little glimpse so you know I'm not lying to you. In Isaiah chapter 30, 31, where Isaiah is actually talking about, Yahweh is talking about, um, protecting the, the, the city of Jerusalem. He says, like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare. He will pass over and rescue it. All those terms are talking about the exact same thing that God is doing in this event in Exodus that we call the Passover. That I will spare those people, that I will watch over them and I will protect them as I bring my judgment upon the king of Egypt, the Egyptians, and the rebellious people who have chosen not to believe me. Now, we pick up in, in verse 14. It says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And then he goes on to describe the feast of unleavened bread. 
We don't have time to get there, okay? We talk about the Feast and Unleavened Bread, and that's going to come back, and you're going to talk about it this week when you do live it out. You're going to talk about it being in Deuteronomy chapter 16. It's a command that the children of Israel would celebrate this feast in a different kind of way. They do it differently. That what do they do? They come together in an assembly as God's people. They offer a sacrifice and they actively remember God's deliverance of them that night that in their homes, that their forefathers, maybe, maybe in their lives they do it, but then the, their forefathers had, had given this sacrificial Passover lamb to trade the actual firstborn for the blood of a lamb. They do it as an act of remembrance. You're going to read about that. And the unleavened bread, it it represents purging, okay? It it represents purging sin. And that becomes later on in the children of Israel. It gets, gets, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. It gets to be a a common way of saying, purge the sin from among you. But we're going to pick up in verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourself, for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Kill the protection lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch it to the lintel and to the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised you, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. So when you think of this, and you have to go back, remember, go back and plug in, in, in the, where this word Passover is used, God's protection. It is the sacrifice of the Lord's protection. For when he, protect, when he passed over the houses of the other people of Israel and he struck the Egyptians, he spared, he protected us. It's, it's God's action in their lives. It wasn't a belief in some mystical concept, in some kind of thing like voodoo, where if I poke the voodoo doll, I'll get results. That's very real, okay? Very real, very real. I'm not saying that's not real. That's, that's spiritual realm stuff, and you don't want to mess with it. Maybe some of you, you grew up, and you were messing with stuff like a Ouija board, and you experienced some crazy stuff, okay? Very real, very, very real, Okay? Don't mess with it. That's my, that's my free warning today. Don't mess with that stuff. It's not fake. It's not false. It's very real. Avoid it. Okay? That's just for free today. <laughs> it's bad. Don't do that. But here what we see is that the Israelites responded by trusting Yahweh's protection. They did it. They did it. God said do it, and they did it. That's called faith. It's called trust. And and when we trust what God has said, God gives salvation. 
And we're going to talk about, okay, that, that what God does then in the life of the children of Israel, we're going to go through the rest of this book and we're going to talk about their inability to keep the covenant with God. But the covenant with God is about living in relationship with God, not about God's salvation. You see, the children of Israel did nothing to deserve God's salvation. They were simply the people that God had chosen way back from beginning with Abraham. And why did God choose Abraham? Remember back when we did Genesis, we said, because... Because there was nothing about Abraham where it's like, oh, this guy, he's a special. Nope, he chose Abraham. He chose Abraham. And through Abraham, he's, he's worked out a blessing in chapter 12 in the book of Genesis, a blessing that all nations, all people groups of the world would experience the, the right relationship with God that he's created us to experience. That's what, what he's made us for. And then it was through this guy. Abraham, that, that he demonstrates what it looks like to be a person who trusts God. So how did the Israelites experience God's salvation? It was God's gracious protection through a sacrificial lamb. That's how they experienced God's salvation. And, and, and that night, okay, there's a very particular thing that happened. The children of Israel actually did that. The, the destroyer, which is the angel of the Lord, there's a whole case for that. I don't have time to get in all that. If you have questions about that, that's for another day in time. But this is, this is, throughout the Old Testament, we see that the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, shows up as the physical manifestation of Yahweh. And, and we saw that back at the burning bush as we saw a physical manifestation of Yahweh there and now this word destroyer it's not talking about the enemy of God there that's not what it's talking about it's connected to the idea of the angel of Yahweh the one who's going to take the lives it's the divine warrior Yahweh himself says I'm going to do that I'm going to be the protection and I'm going to be the judgment so how do we experience God's salvation? God's gracious protection through a sacrificial lamb. And just like there was a real lamb whose blood was shed, who, who, whose blood was placed over the doorpost, who there was an actual Israelite male whose life was spared in that home where that happened and the children of Israel identified themselves with all those firstborn sons because collectively they were the firstborn son of God. We read that already in the book of Exodus. Collectively, that's who they were, but there were representatives, the actual firstborn whose lives were spared and the entire community was identified with them in order that they would experience God's salvation. For us, an actual person became the final sacrificial lamb who traded his life with an actual person, a real person. There was another person who was supposed to go to a cross. His name was Barabbas. And, and that Barabbas, his name is actually Jesus Barabbas. And they say, which, Barab which Jesus? It's the Barabbas one. That's the one we want. We want you to spare his life. And he said he was a robber. He was a criminal. He was a legitimate evil dude. And his real physical life was spared. 
As Jesus died a sacrificial death on the cross in order that we would be able to identify our lives with him as the final Passover lamb. Now, when when John says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the question you should ask is, what lamb? And the answer is it, the Passover lamb, yeah, but there's also more lambs, okay? More lambs in the, in, that he represents. But one of the lambs that John would be referring to there is the final Passover lamb. No longer do we need a, a sacrificial lamb because Jesus is the culmination of the sacrificial system. He is the completion He is the fulfillment of what it looks like to live in covenant relationship with God. So now if we want to live in covenant relationship with God, we have to be identified with Jesus because he's lived out the example of the perfect covenant relationship. And through him, we are now joined in a new relationship through, through a new covenant that, that Jesus says is in his blood. And so in your, in your bulletin, there's a picture. You should cut that out, put that in your Bible. So, so how did the lamb rescue people in the Old Testament? Because the people trusted God. How does the lamb rescue people in the New Testament? Because the people trust God. And, and when John says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we could say that this way. Behold, the lamb who is God, who takes away the sin of the world. So here's the super cool thing. I told you a couple weeks ago, there's something super cool. So, so the physical manifestation of Yahweh is the angel of Yahweh. And here we see that, it, that the destroyer, it is connected to the angel of Yahweh, brings judgment and death upon the Egyptians. In the New Testament, we see that, that God becomes a man, okay? As, as we read about the incarnation of Christ as, as God becomes a man. Now with that, there, there's something that you need to remind yourself. You may have never thought of this before. God did not have a baby, okay? God did not have a baby. God became a man. And you'd be like, I've never thought of it that way. Really important, okay? God became a man through the incarnation. God didn't have a baby. God became a man. And now it's connected to this idea that he is the son of God. Who was the firstborn son of God? The children of Israel. Who's the perfect son of God? Jesus. Who was able to fulfill everything that the firstborn son of God couldn't do? Jesus, the firstborn son of God, the nation of Israel failed in living out covenant loyalty. But the the perfect son of God completed that and gives us a picture of what it looks like to live in relationship with God. Not only that, but when we look and we go, wow, the God of the Old Testament who brought down judgment, he, he went through the physical manifestation, blow your minds, who is the physical manifestation of Yahweh in the Old Testament, becomes a man in the New Testament. So the one who delivered judgment takes the judgment on himself. Jesus is not a victim. Jesus is not a victim. He's not a victim of God's plan. He knew exactly what he was doing. And that gives us confidence and it gives us hope. 
He points us to say, this is better, folks. This is better than I thought it was. God is better than I think he is. He's been better all along. I just haven't been reading all of his story. God has been providing for our new life all along the way. Now, we always end with a story. So here's a story. And uh, it's not going to be my story. It's going to be a story not really a story. It's taken from a letter that, that Paul wrote to a church in Greece, in the city of Corinth. And in that letter, in, he writes about um, a lot of different things. It's a fascinating letter. But this summer, I had the opportunity to be in Greece. And it, and it was because of the incredible generosity of my in-laws Incredible, generous gift that allowed um, my, my wife's whole family to be there. It was amazing. I, I'd never been so happy to be a Harshaw, you know? Just, just call me a Harshaw. Let's just take me along wherever we're going. It was amazing. But one of the things that, that uh, was kind of mind-blowing to me is uh, the, the sexual nature that was celebrated just on the street in Greece. You would walk by a, a tourist shop. Like there's postcards, there's tourist stuff, stuff that I can't actually describe to you. Just there, just like it's normal. In our culture, totally not normal, shocking. One of the things I can describe is there's postcards that are are displaying pictures from a couple thousand years ago about things that are unspeakable in the culture in which we live when it comes to sex. And you're going, what are they doing? How do they say this is normal? This is crazy. So now when I'm reading this letter that Paul's writing to a church in Corinth, I'm like, oh, this tape makes total sense. This is just common. And in that letter, he he writes this. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And he goes on to describe what that sexual immorality is. And what he describes is, hey, there's there's a believer in your churches. That's why here, there's a believer in your church. And the word on the street is that he's having sex with, the phrase is, his father's wife. That gets weird real fast. It's either, okay, it's either his mom or his stepmom, either way, it's super creepy. In our world, we're like, what did he just say? And when you go and visit, you're like, oh, that, I don't know that they would have thought that was crazy. Well, well you do that, don't you? In a, in a culture where, where this is celebrated, where, where the, the actual um, worship activity of the other Groups of gods in the Greek pantheon that would have included that. that. That's not crazy. But for followers of Jesus, this is crazy. And he says, hey, this is crazy. And so here's what you're supposed to do. Have nothing to do with them. Turn them over, he says, to the adversary. Hey, you are to deliver this man to the adversary for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. If you want to love him... Turn him over to the, to the judgment of the adversary of God. He says this, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
Leaven, a little sin. Do you not know that a little bit of sin puts sin in the whole group? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Paul is saying, hey, your sin has already been paid for. Cast it out because you really are under a new covenant. You really are a new creation in Christ. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It's complete. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's the call. And we'll be like, yeah, we should flee from sexual immorality. That's something that you should be like, okay, I get that. Okay, I've heard that before. But there's more. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So there's a letter before this letter. We just don't have it. So 1 Corinthians, you may have people actually hear, they call it 1 Corinthians. They're not wrong when they say that. They're just saying there was a letter that was before this one. So there was a letter before that we don't have that Paul seems to have written to them where he gave them some correction saying, don't associate with sexually immoral people. Now here's the caveat. Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this word or world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So he's saying, hey, to you as followers of Christ who are in the church, you as believers, yeah, I'm not talking about those people in the world. I'm talking about among you. That among you, you don't allow sexual immorality. Don't, don't, don't associate with people who are Greedy as idolaters and revilers, drunkards and swindlers. Don't even eat with them. Don't even do that. And what did we do with that instruction? We've inverted it. We've inverted it. You'll hear Christian people talk about it all the time. There's not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay beating this drum. There's not a, a sexually perverse thing in the world that should shock you. Our culture has nothing on ancient cultures that Paul was writing to. You think that we've invented new ways to sin when it comes to sex? We are, we're not even on the same page they're on. Just go look at a postcard in Greece. You'd be like, woo, I've never imagined this. That's beyond. So what we've done is we tolerate sexual immorality within the church and we look at the world and say, can you believe? Paul says, no. You've had your life changed. You are transformed. You've been identified with Christ. Flee from all of it. He, he picks sexual immorality, but then he ties in greed and swindlers and idolatry. He, he, he gives the whole big list, right? Yeah, like, hey, all of that if you're a believer, flee from that because it's not who you are. Live like you are a follower of Christ. And so when it comes to remembering, really, this is the call on us. We remember like live, living like it's true. That's the call. You'll be like, how do I live like it's true? Everything in your New Testament after the book of Acts is all about living like it's true. 
What does it look like for us to be a people set apart for God's purposes? What does it look like for a people who flee sexual immorality, who flee idolatry, who flee the stuff that the world is pointing to for hope and satisfaction? We run away from that stuff as we run into a world that needs Jesus. So as we encounter people in the world that are engaged in sexual immorality, it's not run away from those people, it's run to those people. They're the mission of God. As, as, we, as we look at the world around us and, and as the world is consumed by the love of stuff and experiences, we don't run away from those people, we run to those people while at the same time within the community of faith saying, hey, we need to make sure that we're guarding ourselves from that. The word is holiness, not a popular word. Set apartness, that we would reflect who Jesus is as our final perfect sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world. What a gift. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna remember. And now I'm gonna ask you this week that you would engage in the live it out. One of the ways that we remember is in a daily engagement. What we're gonna do is we're going to remember through communion as, as Jesus connects the Passover to his death and resurrection as, as he takes the, the bread and the cup and redefines it, giving it perfect meaning. We're going to celebrate that now. So in all of our venues, what's going to happen is I'm going to invite you to go ahead, take your cup, peel back and take and hold your bread in one hand, hold the cup in the other, and your worship team is going to sing over you. They're going to sing this song over you, and I'm going to ask you to reflect, to remember uh, uh, what God has done in the gift that he has given you through being the final sacrificial lamb who's taken away your sin, and even more than that, giving you an opportunity to follow him today. So as you hold those two things, remember. Remember.